Good morning. Let's do it again. Good morning. There you are. Paul, what, what a great song to sing. I'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned in awe of the one who gave himself. I want to welcome you to church. Bob already welcomed you. My name is Ron, and I'm the lead pastor at New Life. And uh, it's my privilege over the next 30 minutes or so to guide you through uh, what God's going to say in his word to us this morning. And uh, if this is your first time here, let me scope it out a little bit for you. Uh, if you take your program on the inside of your program, you'll find a half sheet of fill-in-the-blank notes. Uh, I would encourage you to take the, pe the pencil that's on your chair or in the, in the uh, pocket in front of you and uh, fill in the blanks, and then at least once during the week, uh, work your way back through that. It will help you remember what we've talked about. It will also help you, uh, well, it'll help it make a difference in your life. And every Sunday at New Life, we deal with a subject uh, from God's Word that's uh, really important to our success in life. And uh, these are things that will help you enjoy life more. There are things that will make your family work better, your marriage work better. It will make a better person out of you, and it will increase your enjoyment in life. And uh, so I uh, just want to invite you to do what the rest of us do, and that is come and open our hearts and say, okay, God speak into my life. And uh, if that's a new experience for you, uh, well, then we're honored that we get to be the first one to invite you to do that. So just enjoy the morning and uh, because we're going to talk about a very, very interesting topic. It's a topic that's about which there's a lot of confusion. Uh, unfortunately, it's a topic that's been misrepresented and misunderstood uh, many, many times and very definitely miscommunicated uh, from pulpits across the country. And we're going to talk this morning about the fear of God. And, you know, if I put a big banner out there that said, Welcome to New Life, come and hear about the fear of God. You know, people would run the other way, right? Because that just doesn't sound like that's going to be a whole lot of fun. Uh, but actually, I think you're going to find this morning that, uh, well, actually, I want you to look at, look at your little half page of notes I want you to look at the actual title of the message. What does it say? The, what's the next word? Liberating. Liberating fear of God. Now, probably few people would put those, uh, those words in the same context. But I want you to know that God would. Some of you probably grew up in churches somewhat like I grew up in. And they were a little bit more hellfire and brimstone kind of churches. Some of you know what guilt is like because you felt it every Sunday. In fact, I remember uh, uh, greeting some people on the way out of church one Sunday, not here, but at a different place, where I was asked to be a guest speaker. And one of the older ladies in the congregation shook my hand on the way out the door, and she said, I don't know if this is all right to say, but I really enjoyed church this morning. <laughs> well, that let me know what kind of diet she was used to. <laughs> Probably wasn't the stuff, you know, that would make her really enjoy life. You see, because when it comes to the fear of God, um, usually churches tend to fit in one category or the other. They tend to paint God. Well, I remember singing a song when I was a kid. We didn't sing songs like what we did this morning, but we sang some of the older hymns. And I remember very vividly as a kid, that, that we sang a song called, There's an All-Seeing Eye Watching You. 
And I remember as a kid, you know the, the image I got in my mind? I pictured heaven and I pictured God's throne and a giant eyeball up there on the throne. And it was kind of like a work of fine art. You know how you can tell a piece of fine art? No matter where you walk in the room, the eyes are always following you, right? This eyeball, no matter where I went, it was just on me, right? And, and, and I just had this sense of, man, I better not mess up. Or it would be lights out for me. Or churches tend to fit on the other side. They tend to view God as sort of a cosmic Santa. You know, we sing Christmas carols, and one of the Christmas carols that we sing is this uh, song, You Better Watch Out. Remember that one? He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. You know the great thing about Santa's list? Nobody's ever on the bad side. Did your parents ever say to you, you know, I'm sorry, man. Santa made his list and you were on the wrong side. You got nothing this year. Your parents did? I've never met parents that had the guts to say that. Yeah, because we all know that no matter what we do, Santa will bring us something anyway. And so, yes, there are churches that so emphasize the grace of God and the goodness of God and the love of God. And I don't want you to miss that. But they miss the flip side. As I was making this sermon and praying about it, I remembered a story I heard years ago. It was about three blind guys who wanted to know what an elephant was like. So they got a hold of the local zookeeper and he said, we got a tame one, I'll bring you right in the pen with the, with the elephant. So he took the three blind guys in there and the first guy just by chance got a hold of the elephant's ear. And so he kind of felt on both sides of that, of that ear and he announced to his two buddies, he said, an elephant is like a pancake. I can feel it. You know, it's a little bit thicker and it's a little bit rubberier and a little tougher and, and so forth, but it's really like a big pancake. Well, one of his buddies said, I have no idea what you're talking about because he had reached out and by chance got a hold of the leg. And he goes, an elephant's like a tree, except it's softer. It's not hard. It's softer than a tree and the bark doesn't give you any splinters and it's warm and it's nice. An elephant's like a, it's like a living tree. And the third guy said, I have no idea what you guys have been smoking. Because he got a hold of the tail. He was elephant's like a snake. I mean, it's like a wiry snake, and it's a hairy, wiry snake at that. Now, I want you, there's so many lessons to learn from that little story, but I want you to get this one. All three of those guys had good reason to believe what they believed, didn't they? They had hard evidence in front of them. They were feeling it with their hands. And they would swear to you that that's what an elephant was like because they had good reason to believe that. But the truth is, they were all wrong. And there are times in life when you and I will feel like we have really good reason to believe something about life or in this case about the fear of God because, you know, we've somehow, we got our hands on it and, and we figured out what the fear of God is like. But the problem is, We've only got one part of it. And if you grew up in a hellfire and brimstone church, then you're going to think the fear of God is like this hellfire and brimstone stuff that you've got to shake and quake and be afraid and live in fear all of your life and try not to make God mad because if you do, you're in real trouble. And you'll believe 
that that's actually what the fear of God is because that's all of it you've ever known. And if you grow up in the opposite kind of a church, your concept of the fear of God is perfect love casts out all fear so I don't have to be afraid of God anymore. Whoopee, it's party time till Jesus comes. And you think that you'll have good reason to believe that. This morning, I want to be able to take God's Word and begin to break it out for us so we can begin to understand what the fear of God is really like. And here's why I want to do this for you. Take a look up at the video screens at a couple of screens of actual bullet points. And I've just simply put a simple question at the beginning. Which of these would you be willing to forfeit? And the first is God's goodness toward you. Anybody here willing to go through life and say, God doesn't need to be good toward me? No, we, we all want that. The next one is God's protection of me. The next one is God's provision of all of my needs. And then God's delight in me. And the last one is God's love for me. And I'll give you a minute to write down those words. I know I can read to them faster than you can write them. God's goodness toward you. God's protection of you. God's provision of all of your needs. God's delight in you and God's love for you. Now there's another whole screen. Let's take a look at it. Wisdom and understanding and the fulfillment of your desires in life and the quality of your life and honor and purity. Now the truth is, you know how I made that list? I went just halfway through the Bible and I simply went through and said, what does God connect the fear of God with in His Word? And every single one of those is directly connected to our fear of God or lack of it. You know what that means? It means that if you and I don't properly understand the fear of God and invite it into our lives to where it becomes wholesome and healthy for us, that we are going to struggle and have deficiencies in every one of those areas. Well, I looked at that list and I said, is there anything in that list that I'd be willing to voluntarily forfeit? I looked at it and I said, no, I would want every one of those. Is there anything on that list that I'd be willing to just take a part, you know, just give me a little dab of that? No, actually, I want all that stuff. I want all the wisdom I can get in life. I want all the understanding I can get in life. I actually want all the honor I can get in life. Not, not for pride reasons, but I want to live an honorable life. I want to have a good name. Not just a kind of a good name. I want to have a good name. I want, I want to have a pure name. I want God's goodness in my life. I want His love in my life. I want His protection. I want His provision. And actually, I want God to delight in my life, not just to put up with me, not just have patience with me. I want, you know, when I get on my knees and I say, dear God, I don't want his response to be, oh, dude, it's him again. When I get on my knees and I say, you know, dear God, our father, I want him to delight in me. Here's the truth. The Bible connects, directly connects every one of those with the fear of God. So it's important that you and I understand it and embrace it into our life. So let's start with the definition. What does the fear of God look like? Well, if you do any study and you just start taking all the passages in the Bible that talk about the fear of God, there's 250 some of them. If you take them all and you begin to boil them down, there's kind of there's not a single English word that correctly encapsulates all of it, but there are three kind of basic concepts that go into this. And so here's the definition. It means to regard with feelings 
of reverence, to consider exalted, and last of all, to be in awe of. Now, I had you write the word feelings in there because I want you to know that it's entirely possible for you to get this all locked in up here, but if it never makes it to your heart, you won't ever have any real fear of God. Not in the good sense or in the bad sense. You'll just have it intellectually. So these are feelings of respect toward God and feelings of, of, of God being exalted and feelings sometimes even of the fear of God. So let's break out those three words and see what each one has its root in. And the first is the word reverence. And reverence has its root in the concept of respecting God because of His character. And you find this over and over again in the Bible. I'm just going to give you a couple of passages here in Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, listen and pay attention. Do not be arrogant for the Lord has spoken. Show the Lord your God the respect that is due Him. Definitely connected with the fear of God. Let's go to the second passage, Psalm 22. Praise the Lord, all you who respect Him, all you descendants of Jacob, honor Him, fear Him, all you Israelites. You see, He's got the words respect and honor and fear all tied up together because they all come out of that same perspective or feeling in the human heart over God's character. Now, this is all tied up in the concept of God's goodness toward us. See, when you and I begin to really grasp, you know, you look around at our world and you say, we're pretty messed up. And, and I, I could spend the next 30 minutes just giving you all the statistics on how messed up we are as human beings. But all you have to do is pick up the paper and just read the first two or three pages every day and get your commentary on mankind and you figure out, you know, then take the paper and set it down, pick up your Bible and read about those same people you just read about on pages 1, 2, and 3 of the paper and you pick up your Bible and you read, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. And you're going, I would not give my son for that mess. Right? None of us would. It's the goodness of God manifested toward us. And I'm going to read you a few verses later from the psalm that we're going to read through this morning in which David just basically says, open your eyes and look. Man, God is great and wonderful. So respect Him. Show Him reverence because of His goodness. The second major word in, in that definition was this, and that's the concept of honor. We should honor or consider exalted. The concept here is honoring God because of His position. The concept here is rank, okay? God has a position that's exalted, and we have a position that's not so exalted. It's, it's above the animals, that's for sure, but it's well beneath God. And the Bible says this, I will exalt you, my God and King, and praise your name forever and ever. I will praise you every day, yes. I will praise you forever. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. No one can measure His greatness. Let me read you one more passage. Kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all the rulers on earth, young men and maidens, old men and children. You got the idea of what he's saying? That would include pretty much everybody, right? If you're a living, breathing human being, then David says, this is, what you, this is what you should be doing. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is what? Exalted. Now the concept here, I know you can get a hold of, because all of you live 
and you work in workplaces where there's the concept of rank. If you're in the military, let's say that you're a brand new enlistee, all right? Already you understand what five-star general means, correct? And you recognize that there are certain things that you do with your peers that you do not do in the presence of a five-star general, okay? If, you have just, if you're just in the workplace and you're around the water cooler, but the boss or the big boss shows up at the water cooler, it changes everybody's conversation, doesn't it? So if you're an enlistee and a five-star general walks in, you don't look at him and go, hey, George, what's up? Because you recognize that's not acceptable. And in fact, you may laugh and joke around and kid around with your peers, but you, don't do, you understand you don't do that with a boss. You don't play a prank on the general. That's not acceptable. Because there's a difference in position. And at the root of understanding how to worship God and relate to God. Yes, God is our Father and He loves us dearly. And yes, God wants to be our friend in life and He wants to come alongside us and walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death and all that other stuff. And that's all good and wonderful, but don't ever forget for a moment He's still God. You understand what that means? And that we honor Him because of His position. He's exalted. The third major word that's, that was in that definition is, is the concept of awe. And the key issue here is the fear of God because of His power. And this is why oftentimes it's translated fear of God. In some translations it's, it's translated reverence. And in some translations it's translated honor. You realize why it's translated differently in different translations because it kind of takes all of those together in order to make it happen. Here's a couple of passages of Scripture that talk about the awe. How awesome are your deeds, so great is your power, that your enemies cringe before you. Notice it doesn't say your children or, 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 or those who follow you, but it's those who set themselves against God eventually will cringe because of His power. All the earth bows down to you. They sing praise to you. They sing praise to your name. Come and see what God has done. How awesome His works in man's behalf. Come, let us rejoice in Him. He rules forever by His power. His eyes watch the nations. Let not the rebellious rise up against Him. I'm going to read you one more passage, but before I do, I just want to tell you something about this church that is, it's kind of spontaneous, but it's been this way from day one, and I just love it. Every time we get ready to sing praise to God in this church, we stand. Have you noticed that? I know those of you who are older have noticed that because it gets tiresome, and I know. I apologize for that. Do you know why I like that? Because we are showing God the reverence that's due His name. You know, if you're in a courtroom and the judge gets ready to come in, what is it that the bailiff says? All rise. His honor or the honorable and, and introduces the judge. I just love that. And you know, I have to confess to you that when, I, when I'm on vacation, I go to another church and they're leading us in worship and everybody's sitting down. It just doesn't seem right to me. I want to stand up. I feel like I'm dishonoring God by sitting in His presence when we're there to praise Him. And uh, 
That's not a theological deal. It's just an honor deal. I love that. I just think it helps us get rightly related to him. Now, let me read you the second passage. So who in all of heaven can compare with the Lord? What, what mightiest angel is anything like our Lord? In fact, the highest angelic powers, what do they do? They stand in awe of God. He is far more awesome than all who surround His throne. O Lord God of heaven's armies, where is there anyone as mighty as you, O Lord? So that's what the fear of God looks like. It's all that stuff wrapped up together. I want to give you an illustration I hope you always remember. Because as I wrestled through this, I'm thinking, okay, God, how do I get a handle on this? God said to me, just look at your wood shop. And for those of you who don't know me, one of my hobbies is working with wood. And at the heart of my wood shop is my table saw. It's a Delta Model 690 contractor's saw. It has mounted to it a Delta Unifence. It has mounted to its shaft an 80-tooth, carbide-tipped, super-sharp, cross-cut blade that will cut the hardest wood like butter. I love my table saw. I can't imagine working on wood without that table saw. I have buddies who bring to me wood that's too hard to work in their saw and they bring it to my shop and I crank it up and we just cut through it and we mill it stuff, uh, sometimes even with micrometers to the thousandth of an inch. I love it. Besides that, my wife gave it to me for our 25th wedding anniversary. So much for the diamond ring, right? It's all right. I love that table saw. It's the heart of my shop. I'm also afraid of it. I never turn it on unless I have uh, eye protection and unless I have uh, ear protection. I never turn it on. You can come to my shop anytime you want. You will never see me having that table saw on without those things on first. I never run wood through that table saw that's less than two and a half inches wide without using the push stick. Never. I don't care how much of a hurry I'm in. I never do that. If you know anything about working with table saws, if you're going to cross cut and you're going to cross cut wood that's between the blade and, and the fence, if you're not careful, it'll get twisted in there a little bit and the, and the table saw will grab that wood and it will throw it at you faster than you can duck. And if you're not careful, it'll stick in you. That's not a good thing. Okay? There's never a time when I use that table saw that I am not conscious of how powerful it is. And that it could and would cut off my finger in a heartbeat. And if it did, would it cut off my finger because it hated me? No. You see, there's a set of rules that allows me to use that table saw in constructive ways that makes it a wonderful blessing that can take a rough and, 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 and somewhat ugly piece of wood and it can turn it into a beautiful piece of furniture that, that's just lovely. But if I disobey the rules, it can be instantaneously destructive. 
I've got friends. You know what I'm talking about? Yo, what happened to you? Oh, man, I did the dumbest thing. You know invariably what they tell me? I cheated on one of those safety rules. Now, friends, life can be a wonderful, wonderful experience. Joyous and happy, even in the midst of struggle, life can be a wonderful experience if you recognize that God says, here's life. It can either bless you or it can tear you up. Now, here's a set of rules, and if you follow these rules, you'll love life. It will bless you, and your life will bless people around you. And so, here's the rules. I didn't give them to you on a day when I was upset, so I, so I haven't made them overly strict. They just are the rules that make life wonderful. And people who fear God understand it's important to keep the rules. Not because God hates them if they don't, but just because life starts throwing stuff at them because that's how life works, the potato soul. So now let's go to Psalm chapter 36. We'll begin to work our way through that. Just before we do that, Justin's going to come out and sing a song. And I want you to think about this for a minute because a Christian songwriter has so well encapsulated what I've talked to you about this morning. That's the two sides of the fear of God. And as he wrote so well, thinking about God, I want the friendship and the fear. Share the secrets of your heart Friendship given to those who seek to Honor you with every part Though I'm one of unclean lips, Lord I am crying, woe is me Trying now to rid myself of All the things that hinder me from
is one thing you have spoken. There are two things I have found. You, O Lord, are ever loving. You, O Lord, are ever strong. I am trying to discover both the closeness and the awe. Feel the nearness of your whisper. Hear the glory of your roar, just knowing you. I think that's probably what God would want from all of us, don't you? Yeah, that we would understand both. So let's take a look at this psalm. It says, sin speaks to the wicked in their hearts. Why? I want you to underline this phrase. They have no fear of God. Wow. They think too much of themselves so they don't see their sin and hate it. There's a, there's a, we could spend quite a while talking about that concept right there. Their words are wicked lies. They are no longer wise or good. At night they make evil plans. What they do leads to nothing good. They don't refuse things that are evil. Wow. David is identifying something for us that I think is so important. And here's lesson number one. And that is, failing to fear God opens me up to temptation and sin. There's not a person in this room that doesn't struggle with sin uh, of many forms, actually. And if you don't know where you struggle, if you're married, just ask. Okay? They'll help you out with that. If you have teenage kids, you'll get a list three times as long. That's how it works. Okay? We all struggle with sin. You know, you go down to the local drugstore and you can buy a thing called sunblock. And you smear it or spray it on your skin and it, it automatically filters out the harmful UV rays of the sun, and it protects your skin. Well, God is saying, and David is saying, the fear of God does that for your heart and temptation. You know, when you become cognizant and aware of God's presence, it's amazing how your behavior changes. <laughs> you ever watch people when they're driving down the road and they see a cop? They could be going 10 and they hit the brakes. 
It's just natural. Yeah. Think about this. You're in the throes of a great temptation. If you're a young mother, you know, your two-year-old has just taken their oatmeal and thrown it across the room and taken their milk and thrown it the other way, but thank God it was in a Tommy tippy cup except the lid came off. And you are ready to scream and yell things that probably grown men shouldn't hear. And the Lord miraculously shows up in the kitchen and says, May I help you with your thoughts right now? You'd be amazed at the self-control you have. What happened? You know, it's amazing. When you get aware of the presence of God, many temptations just kind of fade to nothing. Friends, that's a good thing. That's a great thing. That's when I say, God, help me to become more aware of you so that I don't have to fight so hard all the evil that, that, that is within me and I can be the kind of person that I really want to be and it's so much easier to be when I'm aware of who you are and that you're here. And that's why David said, you know why evil speaks to some people all the time? Because they have no fear of God. So the flip side of that would be equally true. So the first thing I would tell you is, boy, do all you can to embrace the fear of the Lord into your life in a healthy way because it, it will take a lot of temptations that you currently battle and, and they won't be a battle anymore. They'll start to fade to insignificance because the fear of God does that. It's like sunblock to the, to the rays of the sun. Now the second part of this chapter um, we'll learn lesson two from. Lord, your love reaches to the heavens and your loyalty to the skies. Your goodness is as high as the mountains and your justice as deep as the great ocean. In fact, at the end of the sermon, we're going to sing a song that was taken directly from those words. Um, he goes on to say, Lord, you protect both people and animals. God, your love is so precious. You protect people in the shadow of your wings. They eat the rich food in your house and you let them drink from your river of pleasure. You are the giver of life and your light lets us enjoy life. You know what David's saying? He was saying to you and me, if you need reasons to reverence God and to sing His praise and to honor Him for His high position, just open your eyes and look around. There are millions of reasons. Look how good God has been to you. And that is lesson number two. Lesson number two is this, that God gives me many reasons, many reasons to reverence Him. I told you a while ago about an old hymn that we used to sing that conjured up the idea of the giant eyeball on the throne. But not all old hymns uh, might, might be that badly out of context. I remember as a kid growing up and singing this old hymn. And it was good for me. And it said, count your many blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. That's what David was saying. In fact, in that one passage, he talked about God's love and His justice. And he talked about um, God's loyalty to His people and His provision and His goodness. It just was on and on. David just saying, you don't have to look far. And you don't even have to be really astute. Just open your eyes and look. The reasons are everywhere. So how does David close? Well, here's what he says in closing. 
Continue to love those who know you and do good to those who are good. This is his prayer. And, oh God, don't let proud people attack me and wicked people force me away. Those who do evil have been defeated. They are overwhelmed. They can no longer do evil. He says, you know something? And here's lesson number three. The lives of the righteous and the unrighteous are different. And the biggest reason that they are different is because the righteous people fear God and it changes their behavior and the unrighteous people don't. And that's the way God wants. You see, the great deception in life is that somehow if I could exchange God's rules for mine and I could do what I wanted to do in life, that I would somehow be happier than doing what God has asked me to do. You see, when it comes to table saws, in the end, there's only two kinds of people. Those with all their fingers and those with part. That's the truth. And you know something? When it comes to life, there's only two kinds of people. People who actually fear God, and it makes a difference in how they live. Not because they're afraid of Him, not because they quake at at, at any thought of Him, but because they recognize His exalted position, His great power, and His wonderful goodness. And those who don't. Now, I knew you and I would struggle with So how does this tie into being liberating? And every once in a while, God gives us just a wonderful illustration. Some of you will know who Tony Snow is. Tony Snow was, until a couple of months ago, President Bush's press secretary. Unfortunately, in May of this year, uh, Tony Snow uh, died. Before he died, he wrote what I'm going to read to you. And I want you to see just what a tremendous freedom he experienced because he understood how God wired life and he embraced it and bought into it. It's a little longer than I would normally read to you. But I didn't want to leave anything out. It's really good. Here's what he said. Blessings arrive in unexpected packages. In my case, cancer. Those of us with potentially fatal diseases, and there are millions in America today, we find ourselves in the odd position of coping with our mortality while trying to fathom God's will. Although it would be the height of presumption to declare with confidence, I know what it all means. Scripture does provide powerful hints and consolations. The first is that we shouldn't spend too much time trying to answer the why questions. Why me? Why must people suffer? Why can't someone else get sick? We can't answer such things, and the questions themselves often are designed more to express our anguish than to solicit an answer. I don't know why I have cancer, and I don't actually care much. It is what it is, a plain and indisputable fact. Yet even while staring into a mirror darkly, great and stunning truths begin to take shape. Our maladies or weaknesses define a central feature of our existence. We are fallen creatures. We are imperfect. Our bodies give out. But despite this, 
or maybe even because of it, God offers the possibility of salvation and grace. We don't know the narrative of how our lives will end, but we get to choose how to use the interval between now and the moment we meet our Creator face to face. Second, we need to get past anxiety. The mere thought of dying can send adrenaline flooding through your system. A dizzy, unfocused panic seizes you. Your heart thumps. Your head swims. You think of nothingness and swoon. You fear partings. You worry about the impact on family and friends. You fidget and you get nowhere. Now to regain your footing, remember that we were born not into death, but into life. And that journey continues after we have finished our days on this earth. We accept this on faith, but that faith is nourished by a conviction that stirs even within many non-believing hearts, an intuition that the gift of life, once given, will never be taken away. Those who have been stricken enjoy the special privilege of being able to fight with their might, main, and faith to live fully, richly, exuberantly, no matter how their days may be numbered. Third, we can open our eyes and hearts. God relishes surprise. We want lives of simple, predictable ease, smooth, even trails as far as the eye can see. But God likes to go off-road. He provokes us with twists and turns. He places us in predicaments that seem to defy our endurance and comprehension, and yet they don't. By His love and grace, we persevere. The challenges that make our hearts leap and our stomachs churn invariably strengthen our faith and grant measures of wisdom and joy we could not experience elsewhere. Picture yourself in a hospital bed. The fog of anesthesia has begun to wear away. A doctor stands at your feet. A loved one holds your hand at your side. It's cancer, the healer announces. The natural reaction is to turn to God and ask Him to serve as a cosmic Santa. Oh, dear God, make it all go away. Make everything simpler. But another voice whispers, You have been called. Your quandary has drawn you closer to God and closer to those you love and closer to issues that matter and has dragged into insignificance the banal concerns that occupy normal time. There's another kind of response. Although usually short-lived, an inexplicable shudder of excitement as if a clarifying moment of calamity has swept away everything trivial and tiny and has placed before us the challenge of important questions. The moment you enter the shadow of death, things change. You discover that Christianity is not something doughy, passive, pious, and soft. Faith may be the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, but it also draws you into a world shorn of fearful caution. The life of belief teems with thrills and boldness, danger, shocks, reversals, triumphs, and even epiphanies. Think of Paul traipsing through the known world, contemplating trips to what must have seemed to him like opposite ends of the world, shaking the dust from his sandals, worrying not about tomorrow, but only about today. There's nothing wilder than a life of humble virtue. For it is through selflessness and service 
that God wrings from our bodies and our spirits the most we could ever give, the most we could ever offer, and the most we could ever do. Finally, we can let love change everything. When Jesus was faced with the prospect of crucifixion, He grieved not for Himself, but for us. He cried for Jerusalem before entering the holy city. And from the cross, He took on the cumulative burden of human sin and weakness and begged for forgiveness in our behalf. We get repeated chances to learn that life is not about us. That we acquire purpose and satisfaction by sharing God's love for others. Sickness gets us partway there. It reminds us of our limitations and dependence, but it also gives us a chance to serve the healthy. A minister friend of mine observes that people suffering grave afflictions often acquire the faith of two people while loved ones accept the burden of two people's worries and fears. Most of us have watched friends as they have drifted toward God's arms, not with resignation, but with peace and hope. And in so doing, they have taught us not how to die, but how to live. They have emulated Christ by transmitting the power and authority of love. I sat by my best friend's bedside a few years ago as a wasting cancer took him away. He kept at his table a worn Bible and a 1928 edition of the Book of Common Prayer. A shattering grief disabled his family, many of his old friends, and at least one priest friend of his. Here was a humble and very good guy, someone who apologized when he winced with pain because it, he thought it made his guests uncomfortable, and yet he retained his equanimity and his good humor literally until his last conscious moment. I'm going to beat this cancer, he told me just before he died, but if I don't, I'll see you on the other side. His gift was to remind everyone around him that even though God doesn't promise us tomorrow, He does promise us eternity. Filled with life and filled with love, so great we can't comprehend it. And that one can, in the throes of sickness, point the rest of us toward timeless truths that will help us weather future storms. Through such trials, God bids us to choose. Do we believe or do we not? Will we be bold enough to love, daring enough to serve, humble enough to submit, and strong enough to acknowledge our limitations? Can we surrender our concern over things that don't matter so that we might devote our remaining days to things that do? When our faith flags, He throws reminders in our way. Think of the prayer warriors in our midst. They change things. And those of us who have been on the receiving end of their petitions and intercessions know it. It's hard to describe. But there are times when suddenly it's like the hairs on the back of your neck stand up and you feel a surge of God's Spirit. Somehow you just know others have chosen when talking to the author of all creation to lift us up, to speak of us. This is love of a very special order. But so is the ability to sit back and appreciate the wonder of every created thing. The mere thought of death somehow makes every blessing vivid, every happiness more luminous and intense. We may not know how our contest with sickness will end, but we have felt 
the undeniable touch of God. As the Bible says, what is man that you would notice him? Well, we don't know much, but we do know this. No matter where we are, no matter what we do, no matter how bleak or frightening our prospects, each and every one of us who believe each and every day lies in the same safe and impregnable place in the hollow of God's hand. You know, when you get it, when you fully embrace who God wants to be in your life, and you have that level of respect and that level of honor and that level of reverence and that level of fear and that level of assurance and that level of love, even cancer can't take joy from your life because you have experienced and are living the liberating fear of God.